Good afternoon here, church. Warmest of gospel greetings to you all in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We long to gather and to be together, but due to the weather, uh, it's rendered pretty much impossible. But we're grateful to be able to worship with you through this means. Uh, we'll begin our time together by looking to God's Word. Please open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. It's here that God's Word reads, But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So reads the word of, of the living God. Please pray with me. Father God in heaven, we pray to you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our all-supreme Lord and all-sufficient Savior, prophet, priest, and king. Heavenly Father, we come to you understanding that we are sinners by nature and choice, and we all have sinned and fall short of your glory. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and lived the life we refused to live, and died a death in our place and on our behalf, and rose again in victory as our Savior and King. We thank you, Lord, that through Christ we have peace with you, God, for he was lifted up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that though we fell short of the glory of God through Christ, now we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we come to you at this time as worshipers, sinners made into sons and daughters through Jesus Christ by faith for your mercy and grace. Let us worship you at this time in, in spirit and truth. And Father, may we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ more confidence in the gospel of Christ and filled with more joy because of the glory of our Savior. We give you glory in his mighty name. Amen. Please stand with us wherever you are. And let's lift up our voices to God this morning.
Good afternoon again, Hill family. It's good to be with you. I'm excited with great joy. I would ask you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is where we will be this evening. That's for good reason. Most governments don't uh, give absolute power to one person. We need to look no further than Emperor Nero to and his uh, reign during the, over, over Rome during the days of the Apostle Paul to understand why this is the case. And Nero's ascent to power involved a, a trail of deceit, of brutality, and murder of the worst kind. Uh, after the former um, emperor uh, Claudius married his niece uh, Agrippina, they gave birth to a son, really the heir, uh, Nero. And while he was a good student as a boy, the darkness of Nero's character became quite evident as he climbed to power. And after, through a series of events, after realizing um, his mother really to be the only obstacle on his path to absolute power, Nero had her executed to take his seat on the throne as emperor of Rome. But the reality is the brutality of his rise to power was nothing compared to the tyranny of his reign. Everyone and anyone who even remotely challenged Nero found themselves dead. Uh, Plots of assassination would plague his reign, but that would only really intensify the tyranny with which he ruled. Uh, One example involves uh, a time when Nero, in really a fit of rage, burned down uh, a part of the the city. Um, But when backlash came upon him and criticism came, he quickly shifted the blame onto a new religious group called the, the Christians. And to try and cover up uh, his guilt, Nero ordered thousands of Christians to be tortured and killed. Some were even tied to poles and set in his garden and set ablaze as lanterns. Everything about Nero's reign epitomized the tyranny of absolute uh, power. And it was under this reign of tyranny that the Apostle Paul penned his letter to the church at Rome. And it was really this tyrannical leader, uh, Nero, to whom Paul would stand trial before on the final days of his life. Paul, Paul's reference in 2 Timothy chapter 4 may allude uh, to this when he speaks of being delivered out of the, the mouth of the lion. Many believe that is a direct reference to Nero himself. Regardless, though, Paul was very familiar with the tyranny of, of Nero. He, he knew firsthand of his ominous, oppressive, powerful, and, and bloodthirsty reign that this man ruled with, especially towards believers. In fact, Paul's life is believed to have been snuffed out at the hands of of Nero. 
But as, as awful as uh, Nero's tyranny was, it really compelled in comparison to the greater tyranny that Paul addresses in his letter to the Romans. The tyranny of sin and its reign of death. This evening we are we're beginning a, a ten-week series through chapters 6 through 8 of Paul's letter to the Romans. Two chapters which many uh, consider to be the most profound two chapters in the Bible. And we're calling this series uh, Becoming Who We Are in Him or Becoming Who We Are in, in Christ. And, um, for the, and the reason for that is this. The, the focus of these two chapters is, is, is growing in Christ or what we might call sanctification. But what we know is that our sanctification as Christians grows out of, is the result of, is the outworking of our, our justification, which has been the focus of Paul's argument in the first five chapters of, of the letter. What Paul concludes in the first five chapters is that only by faith in Christ and His work in the Gospel can we as sinners be made right, can be, made, can be justified before a holy God. As believers, we possess the privilege of standing positionally right before God in Christ and in Christ alone. So the aim of our sanctification is to become in life who we are in Christ. We are to strive to be in practice who we are positionally. We are to become who we are in Him, our focus of the next ten weeks. And that reality of sanctification, of growing in Christ, begins this morning really by us understanding and I think even embracing uh, the nature of our relationship to sin as believers, which is what Paul tackles head on here in the, the beginning of chapter 6. So I'm going to give you a main idea and then we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of unpacking it. And here it is. It's that through our union with Christ, we are set free from the tyranny of sin to live and to labor in the realm of grace. As believers, through our our union with Christ, we are, are set free from the tyranny of sin so that we can live and we can labor under or in the realm of grace. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read down through to verse 14. The Apostle Paul begins by way of the Holy Spirit. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Father God, we, we come to You in the name of Your Son. And Lord, this, this afternoon we have a, a large, rich portion of Scripture. But Lord, it's a portion of Scripture that we as Christians, if we're going to walk with You in this life, if we're going to walk in the newness of life, we must really take hold of and and really grasp and swallow what's being communicated here about our identity and our union with Your Son, our Savior. There's a death that has taken place in our lives. And because of that death, a new life is to characterize us. Lord, I pray for for Your Spirit to, to, to guide our time, that You would guard my words and Lord, that You would help me to clarify the text, to lift up Your Son. And Lord, ultimately to help us as a church grow to become who we are in Christ. Lord, before we even turn our, before we turn our attention to the rest of our sermon here, we do want to lift our hearts and our, our voices to You this evening, in particular for those in East County who are battling the fires. We pray for Your grace and Your protection over both homes and lives and even our firefighters who are fighting the fire. Lord, we just ask for Your mercy and we ask for Your protection, especially in this season. So Lord, we commit this time to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. As I said, Paul's letter to the Romans it has been referred to as the, the plainest and really grandest statement on the Gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Paul wrote to an ethnically mixed congregation full of both Jews and Gentiles within Rome to, to really expound upon the righteousness of God through faith in Christ and how that simple reality is to mark their understanding of who they are. In chapter 1, verse 16, we, we find something of Paul's thesis statement, we might say, for the, for the letter where he declares that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, because for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, beginning and ending in faith in Christ. In chapters 2 through 3, Paul provides a, a clear explanation on, on the righteousness of God, which brings about condemnation to all men, both Jews and Gentiles alike. As he says in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, for none is righteous, no, not one. No one can stand righteous before God through works of the law, through our own means of effort. And then from the middle of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 5, the text that we began our service with, Paul read, Paul really, the Apostle Paul expounds upon the, the gospel truth of justification by faith like nowhere else in the Scripture. 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, but can be justified or made right by God's grace as a gift through faith in Christ. And because believers have been justified by faith, we see that we have peace with God. We have assurance concerning His love for us, chapter 5, verses 1-11. through We're no longer dead in Adam, but we're alive in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And since we have been justified by faith in Christ, we are eternally clothed with His righteousness and we stand blameless positionally before God. This has been Paul's argument up into chapter 6. But Paul doesn't stop there. So now as we, as we turn the corner into chapter 6 and move into chapter 6 to 8, uh, Paul calls for us to become who we are. He, he calls us to strive to be in practice who we are in position. He calls us to strive to be in life who we are in Christ. And becoming, or our sanctification, becoming who we are in Christ is bound up with our battle with sin. And really understanding the nature of the Christian's relationship to sin is really the, first, the, the, the focus of these next 14 verses in chapter 6. So, I'm going to unpack these verses this evening under four kind of key headings. And we're going to deal first in the first two verses with uh, what I'm calling the perceived question on the part of Paul. And then secondly, we're going to talk about what we see here, I think, in verses 3 through 5 is our necessary union. And then thirdly, our, our freedom in Christ, verses 6 through um, 10. And then lastly, from 11 to the end of verse 14, um, our new mandate or our ongoing mandate. Right, so first, let's look at the perceived question, verses one to two. So, chapter six, as you heard it as I ran, be, as I read, begins with a series of questions. Look at it again. He says, "What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it?" Now, Paul doesn't pull this question out of thin air. Um, it flows from his previous train of thought in chapter 5 regarding our justification, being made right with God. Uh, now, we're not sure if this particular question was, was maybe posed by someone in the church or just, it's just a question that Paul uses rhetorically to kind of develop his argument. Whatever the case may be, it arises out of the previous verses, chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. And I would ask you to kind of turn your eyes over there. I want to read it to you. Chapter 5, verse 20 through 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We take this for granted as Christians, but God's gracious gift of salvation in the gospel this idea that we could be made righteous apart from the law was a revolutionary, is a revolutionary truth. It was a foreign concept. And it raised tons of questions. We see one here. For instance, if the multiplication of sin unleashes somehow God's grace, then wouldn't that make it somehow seem beneficial to keep sinning? Or in other words, does God's grace somehow encourage sin? If I'm under grace, can I just live however I want? Not too foreign from questions that we hear today. But Paul answers this question with an emphatic no. He really repudiates this line of thinking by the phrase, by no means, or may it never be, you might see in your text. 
Paul will have nothing to do with this way of thinking. And Paul answers this question with a question of his own. How can we who died to sin still live in it? By the we here, it's clear Paul is referring to believers. And very importantly, he refers to believers as those who have died to sin. Our relationship, our understanding as Christians is bound up with our, the nature of our relationship to sin. Before salvation, Paul speaks of us in Ephesians chapter 2 as dead in our sins. But now, very importantly, he refers to believers as those who have died to sin. And Paul's logic is straightforward. If you are a believer in Christ, you have died to sin. So how can you continue to live in it? I want to just say this before we, dry, before we dive in. Becoming a Christian requires a decisive shift, a decisive step in your life. Becoming a Christian is not just attending church. It's not just deciding to hang out with a new group of people. It's not just adopting a new way of thinking or a new way of understanding the world. Now, there's a decisive moment which must take place in one's life, which Paul refers to here as, as death. What exactly does Paul mean? We know that in, a, in, a, in one sense, um, we're told as Christians that we're to die to sin every day. We, we're to constantly commit ourselves to continual death to sin. We also know that there will be a future final day when we will be absent from the presence of sin in God's, in God's presence forever. And both of these realities are true, but neither are these specifically what Paul is mentioning here. So what is Paul referring to then? Paul is referring to the, to the, to the death of, uh, of sin which marks the beginning of the Christian life. He's referring to the end of of the tyrannical reign of sin over the believer. As believers, we have died to both the penalty and the power of sin over our lives. And this death comes by way of our, our union with Christ in the Gospel, which is what we see here in verses 3-5. through five. So the next thing we need to look at, it, there is a, there's a necessary union that we must embrace if we're going to truly rightly understand our relationship to sin as believers. Now, Paul depicts this union through somewhat of an unexpected illustration of baptism. It's been said that baptism is the gospel in motion picture. And really, as we read verses 3 through 5, um, they should remind us of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we read of, that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He was raised. Now, Paul's main concern, it's important we, we note this here, Paul's main concern here is not baptism itself. Right? Baptism depicts our union with Christ and the new identity we have in Him. That's his main point. So to understand what it means to die to sin is to understand baptism itself. Paul uses, implores, the understanding of baptism to teach the believers here something about their union with Christ. So Paul asks another rhetorical question here in verse 3. But this time, notice it's a question of knowledge. Paul assumes a knowledge on the part of these believers. And in fact, Paul's going to do this three times. You're going to see him use this idea of we know or you know in verses 3 and verses 6 and verses 9. It really carries along this passage. 
But the question here in verse 3 is, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Again, Paul uses inclusive language here to speak of baptism. The word baptize means to immerse, to dunk, to submerge. Paul uses it here in the, in the past tense, notice, have been baptized or have been immersed. And he connects it, most importantly, to this in preposition here. Those who have been baptized or immersed, look at it, into Christ Jesus were baptized, immersed into his death. Baptism serves as an identification with the death of Christ. Verse 4 really reiterates this point even further. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. A believer's baptism by immersion is one's identification with the death of Christ. Baptism affirms our full union and identity in Him. Paul would speak of this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, where he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have in fact put on Christ. Baptism is the confession of the believer that they have embraced the death of Christ, Paul says. I just want to remind you again that apart from the death of Christ, there is no salvation. And apart from the death of Christ, there is no Christian baptism. The death of Christ alone is the grounds of our justification before a holy God. We bring nothing to the table. Martin Luther, when he was asked what, he, what we contribute to our salvation, famously said, sin and resistance. Every time we place someone under the waters of baptism, we did this last week with three new brothers and sisters. Every time we do this, we are confessing. They are confessing. We are confessing as a church that salvation is entirely an act of God's grace on our behalf, which we participate in through our union with Him. It's His death and His death alone which accomplishes our salvation. Not our works. Not our efforts. We receive what He has done for us through our union into with Him. He died for sin. Therefore, we die to sin. And we die to sin's tyranny over our lives. But that's not all. Right? So while being submerged into the watery grave of baptism beautifully depicts our death to sin in union with Christ and His death, Christ did more than just die. He rose. So our union is with Christ, the resurrected Lord. His death entails His resurrection. Verse 4 says, We were buried, therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So being united with Christ in His death means we are united in His life. Because we are in Him, we too are raised to newness of life. And therefore, we are to walk in this newness of life. We could say our new identity has resurrected feet. We are to walk out our union. And this word walk, we know from Colossians and Ephesians, this is a very common word that Paul loves and he uses often to reference the Christian life. It speaks really of a a manner of living or a steady progress that should characterize the believer's life. So our lives are to entail newness, which comes through this intimate union with Christ. 
which verse 5 speaks to. For if we have been united with Him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like this. I think John Murray is correct when he affirms that death to sin is not itself an adequate characterization for the believer's identity. It is basic. And it is the fundamental premise of the argument. But death to sin is but the precondition of that life which is the final issue of grace. And baptism as signifying union with Christ must mean also union with Christ in His resurrection and therefore in His resurrection life. The reality is this. Union speaks to identity. And as we start to unpack these next chapters over the next ten weeks, we, we need to begin where Paul begins. Thinking about the fact that there is no more important question you can answer in your life, if you're a believer or not a believer, then who are you? The Christian life hinges on this issue of identity. In our relationship to sin as a believer hinges on our identity in Christ. Identity is at the heart of our battle with sin. It's the fundamental question in sanctification. Because as we said, sanctification is the process of becoming who we are in Christ. Chapters 1 through 5, Paul has already laid out with breathtaking detail that Christ has accomplished our identity. He has established and created in us by His work who we are in Christ. We have to dig deep our roots into understanding who He has made us in Christ, what He has accomplished in the Gospel, and now walk and live in light of it. Jesus has accomplished something for us in the Gospel. We are to constantly reorient our lives around the truth of this reality. All that we have, all that we need, and all that we are is found solely through our union with Him. When we think about identity with Christ, we use that language a lot. Our identity is in Christ. What are we saying? When we, when we get to the bottom of it, what we are saying is new life as a result of death is our identity. Death and life are at the heart of the gospel. Because death and life are what Jesus is about. He came to die in order to bring new life. And it must be, this must be, this death and this new life must be at the center of our identity. Growing in Christ demands we identify with Him. We recognize that salvation can't be found in us. That the Christian life, the power of the Christian life can't be found in us. It's found in our union with Him. We must understand ourselves, as Paul says, as dead to sin and alive in Christ. We're alive as new creations in Christ. There's a necessary union. There's also a new freedom here. You see in verse 6. In verse 6, we, we come to a second no statement here. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Our old self here refers to our old way of life in Adam. A topic addressed thoroughly in chapter 5, if you want to go back and read there. And what we 
know as believers is that this old life, this old life of sin has been crucified with Him. Christ is what it says. And look, crucifixion is, crucify is no ambiguous term. We don't have to, you know, guess at what it means. It conveys a thorough destruction, complete removal. The old man is no longer supreme. He, he no longer rules over. He's been decimated. Now, what exactly does that mean? Because we know as believers, we still struggle with sin. Right? In other places, Paul, using this same language in terms of the old man, he would say things like, we're to, as believers, we're to constantly put off the old man and put on the new man. It's an ongoing process for believers. So, what does it mean that our old self has been crucified? It means sin's penalty and power have been destroyed. It means that the tyrannical reign of sin has been removed. And the rest of these verses helps us here. He says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The phrase body of sin is not suggesting in any way that our, our bodies are somehow inherently sinful and really that our bodies themselves, our flesh, are the source of our sin. No, it's that the body before Christ is dominated by sin. The body is sin's body. It belongs to sin. Sin has power over it. It has master over it. It has absolute power resulting in tyranny. And as Paul would say in other places, our old self is bound by sin. And this body dominated and ruled by sin through the work of Christ has been stripped of its power through the death of Christ. We are now free from the dominion that sin exercised over us when we were in Adam, our old self. We are free from sin's tyranny. So that, he says, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In the verse 6. The one who has died has been set free from sin. So to become a Christian and grow in our walk with Jesus, we, we have to rightly understand the nature of sin. And to understand the nature of sin, we have to understand the nature of God. God is holy. God is altogether just and right. He is the fountain of perfection and purity. And He is the author of life Himself. All that belongs, that, that is in this world belongs to Him. Sin is our breaking of God's commandments. Our breaking of His standards. Sin is our transgression of His law. Sin is acting and behaving in a way that disregards the very character of God. Sin is a rebellion and anarchy towards the Creator. And sin causes separation from God. It brings enmity between us and God. It alienates us from Him. But it does more, the text says. It doesn't just alienate us. It enslaves us. Sin masters us and rules over us. It brings us into captivity. In our old self, our natural state apart from the new birth in Christ, we are unable to turn from sin and thus we are enslaved to it. This is why Paul's argument in the first five chapters of Romans tells us that we must look for and we must find our righteousness outside of ourselves. We're bound by sin. We cannot obtain the righteousness that we need through the law. We need a Savior. We're bound in our old man. We are bound to sin. But Paul says here so beautifully, but no longer. Christ has delivered us from the bondage of sin. Now our old self is not merely the un un unconverted self, which 
we no longer deal with. No, Paul writes to believers here. We need to be clear of that. Our old self is not just our, un- our unconverted self. Our old self, Paul's referring to, is our old self in Adam. The new self is Christ. So we cling to our union with Christ, not our union to Adam. And the glory of the Gospel is that Christ has set us free and He's enabled us to do such. He has broken sin's power over us. And we are to live in this new freedom. And look what it says in verse 8. This requires us to look forward. Verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over us. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Christ died. Christ rose once for all. He will never die again. For His death forever crushed death's dominion. Christ's resurrected, resurrection shattered forever the tyranny of sin and death. Our cruel master and unjust oppressor no longer exercises authority over us. Sin was destroyed upon the cross. Death was proven impotent by the resurrection. So, brothers and sisters, this should give us confidence for to walk in freedom. And our confidence is found in the knowledge that Christ lives forevermore. Because we're united with Christ in His life as we were in His death, we have the security and certainty of a life that will never end. United with Christ in baptism, we too die to sin once for all. And united with Christ in baptism, we too emerge from the realm of death unto new life. Both in a new life of quality and quantity. A new life that will not, as we see here, cannot end. Christ lives forevermore. So our, our freedom in Christ should motivate us to become who we are in Christ. We live in the freedom that we have found in Christ. So there's a, a necessary union, a new freedom, and then there's here a new mandate or a, an ongoing new mandate, we could say. From verse 11 to the bottom, to verse 14. Paul's argument really has been building towards verse 11. But he provides somewhat, as I said, a new mandate here. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Notice, so you also. He's connecting us to someone. Just as Christ is dead to sin and alive to God, we must consider ourselves likewise dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. When I was in high school and not living the most God-honoring life, I would often leave my house and my, my father would often say to me, Son, don't forget you're a steel. Act like a steel. Right? And my father was reminding me to act in accordance to my identity as a steel. In a much more theological way, this is exactly what Paul is telling us here. Paul is saying we are to act in accordance to who we are in Christ. Be who you are is Paul's exhortation. This is what sanctification is. Becoming who we are in Christ. 
faith means we are to see things as Jesus sees them and act accordingly. And this phrase, consider yourself, is key to this whole passage. And it's the word Paul uses over 19 times in the book of Romans, given the idea of, of count or reckoning. If you're reading from the KJV, the King James Version, or the New King James Version, you will see this word there, reckon. The truth is, Christ's death and resurrection has, has altered our position. It has ruptured our reality. It has given us a new identity of, in Christ. And we are to live in accordance with this reality. And it's very important here. This is the first exhortation that Paul gives the church in Rome up to this point in his letter. Up until this point, he has been carefully laying a a doctrinal foundation. Paul's been describing with great detail what God has accomplished for us in Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and, and the righteousness of Him. The law condemns us all in our sin. By our own merits and efforts, none of us can stand before God, for we cannot fulfill the law. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. God has sent His Son who perfectly fulfilled the law in every way. Jesus embodies, Jesus possesses the righteousness we need. And yet He was the one willing to take upon Himself our penalty for sin. He died in our place as our substitute. And He rose again forever defeating death and sin. And He rose again to offer us life and the righteousness we need to stand before a holy and righteous God by faith in Him. Living the Christian life requires us embracing this reality. We have to view ourselves through this lens. We need to take the the, the truths of what Paul has said in chapters 1 through 5 and reckon them upon ourselves. Consider ourselves. We must reckon ourselves, count ourselves, consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. Why? Because God in Christ has died to sin and He's alive forevermore. And this does not mean we're immune to sin. Paul doesn't say sin is dead. He says recognize Christians. He says because of the work of Christ, we are to count ourselves dead to sin. The reality is where sin is the natural consequence for the unbeliever, it was our natural consequence before we came to Christ because we were enslaved to sin. The sin we now commit is out of character for us. We have been delivered from the dominion of sin and death and permanently through the work of Christ. His death was sufficient and permanent. And our union is with Him. And because Christ's life is oriented to the service of God, so must ours. That's what it says here at the end, right? Once for all, in the end of verse 10, but uh, for the, the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. And we are as well. So what does that entail? And Paul spells it out here in verse 12. Let me read through the end here. Paul says, Let not sin reign, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Godly living is not an option for the Christian. 
It's a command. Godly living is actually the purpose behind our redemption. It's the reason behind our freedom. It's what God has set us free to do. To live for Him. Let not, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies, making you obey its passion. We who have the power of Christ in us, who have died to sin and walk in the newness of life, must not let sin reign in our lives. Again, this assumes sin is present for the believer. But it assumes a certain relationship the believer has towards sin. It assumes sin wants to execute its reign over us again through, its, through our passions and lusts. So while our new birth brings death to our sinful selves, it does not bring death to our corrupted passions and desires. But we are to wage war against this until we enter glory. How do we do that? Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as righteous as sin to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Paul says, Do not present, do not offer up your members, yourselves, to promote wickedness. Literally, don't be a tool. Don't be a tool. Don't be a weapon for unrighteousness. But with a strong contrast, offer yourself up to God and your body as a weapon, as a tool of righteousness. You've been brought out of the dominion of death. What kind of sense would it make to be a tool of darkness? Christians, we we are to view ourselves and our whole lives as, as tools in the hand, as instruments in the hand of, of our Redeemer. In the hands for the advancement of His kingdom. And this doesn't happen by osmosis. It takes conscious effort. We are to present ourselves, Paul says. We are to offer up ourselves to God. In light of our union with Christ and our identity in Him and our new freedom He's purchased, we must offer all of ourselves up as instruments of righteousness. This will be a great question. It will be a great question to discuss in communities. What does that look like? What does it look like to offer up yourself? How does it affect your time? How does it affect your relationships? How does it affect everything that you do? How do you not present yourself as an instrument to unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as instruments of righteousness? The reason for this is found in verse 14 which brings us back to our original question. You remember the historical question Paul began with? The question really was, does grace encourage sin? Right? So if you're saying, if Paul, what you're saying is that my sin increased, therefore grace abounded all the more, then I might as well go and live however I want and keep sinning so more grace will come. Paul really does turn this line of thinking on its head here in verse 14. And we cannot miss the fact that verse 14, I, I didn't see this when I was until I started studying. I've never read it this way. But verse 14 is a promise. Verse 14 is the indicative which grounds the imperative of verse 13. In other words, we are commanded to do verse 13 because of the reality of verse 14. Look at it. He says, For sin will have no dominion over you. That's a promise. Why, Paul? since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul is saying something new has taken place, Christian. 
We live under a new reign. No longer are we people of God under the heir of the law. If so, sin would still reign over us. To live under the Mosaic law was to live under the power of sin. For the power of God could, for the people of God, we, they could not obey the law. The law brought condemnation as it revealed one's sin and inability to keep its demands. The reality was the law could not produce what it required. Namely, our obedience and righteousness. As Paul says in Galatians, those who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So Paul here connects freedom from sin with freedom from the law. The law convicts, kills, and enslaves. Only grace brings life and freedom in Christ. So back to the question. So do we just live however we want? Since we're not under law, we're under grace? No. We live and labor as believers under the reign of grace, not the law. The purpose of the law was always to point us to our need for grace. For Christ. And grace now frees us. Enables us to obey the law. The law revealed our sin and need for a Savior. And grace, truly understood, truly embodied, truly raptured up in, in Christ, leads us not to more sin, but to a loving obedience from the heart to Christ. Transformed and empowered by grace, we lovingly obey the law. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. We understand, we believe the promise that sin's tyranny has been broken. For sin will have no dominion over thee. The tyranny of sin has been broken, but not by us keeping the law, but by God's grace in the gospel. So I want to close here. We're going to, we'll, we'll give a lot of time and thought to think through this more this week through community group life in different places. But I want to close by kind of summarizing. This is help for me. Maybe help for you. Paul's line of thinking here. We have died to sin through our union with Christ. This being the case, Paul says, how can we live in what we have died to? Having shared in Christ's death, we must share in His resurrection life. Our former self was crucified with Christ, setting us free from the tyranny of sin, both its penalty and its power over our lives. The death and the resurrection of Jesus were decisive events. He died to sin once for all, but He lives continuously unto God. Therefore, we must reckon ourselves, we must count ourselves in light of what He's done, in light of who we are, to be what Christ is. Namely, dead to sin, but alive to God. And as such, we must offer our, our bodies, our very lives to God as instruments of righteousness. Because sin is no longer our master. Sin is no longer our ruler. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Because our position has radically changed from being under the law, condemned under the law, to being under grace. And the beauty of the gospel. So grace does not encourage sin. Grace, in fact, condemns it. And marks it as out of bounds for the life of the Christian. We don't live under the law. We live under grace in this new way. Let's pray.
Father God in heaven, we thank you for the gift that through our union with Christ we've been set free from the tyranny of sin to live and labor in the realm of grace. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, I pray that you would see, you would help us to even see as we, we're going to dig deeper next week and the next few weeks really thinking about the power and the nature of sin. And Lord, I would pray that you would help us to to have a more biblical, more robust understanding of sin, to see the depth and the danger and the tyranny of sin so that we can see the richness of your grace in the gospel. Lord, we, we cannot appreciate who you've made us if we don't know where we've come. We cannot appreciate the realm of grace until we understand the difficulty and the, uh, the bondage that we were under because of sin. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would recognize and embrace the beauty of the gospel, recognize that you've set us free, and you've set us free through our union with you, that we would embrace our identity as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would embrace our identity as children of God, those who have died to sin but alive live for Christ. Lord, help us even as we begin this couple weeks thinking about sanctification to root us deeper in our identity in you to see the blessing of the freedom that we share in Christ and Lord, to help us recognize the gift that it is to live in the realm of grace. Lord, for anyone who maybe is listening who doesn't know you, who's maybe thinking through what really is sin, and I'm not sure, I pray they would see in this text the, the danger, the damning reality of sin, that it holds sway, it holds us captive. But there's that phrase in this text, but no longer. That replies to all of us who were accepted by faith. Might anyone who doesn't know you today reach out and grab hold of the no longer in Christ? For your life, for your death on their behalf. And Lord, we, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we sing this song last week. It's called "Let Me Rise Up in Christ." Um, before we jump into singing it again this week, I want us to look at the lyrics, look at the words, look at what's being said. So hopefully you have lyrics in front of you. Look at verse one. I'm just going to read it. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold my hope of only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Wholly, completely. To exclusion of all other things, our lives are now in Christ. And that's why we can sing these things. That's why we can believe these things. That's why we are free from the slavery of sin. As we'll sing later in the song, that's why we can not fear death or any fate that may come to us because Christ holds us. And He will deliver us to eternal life with Him.
But as we sing, I don't want you to just sing. I want you to believe it. So can we just sing? What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer?
Brothers and sisters, we're grateful that you joined us for worship today. We thank you for being a part of us thinking through the riches of Christ today as a church. Uh, we want to remind you that our offering that we've been taking to give to uh, the church that we're partnering with in Beirut, that this is uh, the third Sunday, so um, if you still want to give, you can do today and uh, through Tuesday, and Wednesday we're going to go ahead and make that uh, offering to that church in Beirut. So be praying about the funds themselves, how they'll be used, the resources that they have on the ground, and the lives that they will be able to impact, uh, not only monetarily, but with the gospel of Christ through uh, your faithful giving. I just want to pray for our offering as well. Thank you for your faithful giving. I want to close out by thanking the Lord for our time and for uh, the offering that uh, we give to Him and ask Him to use it to multiply it for the advancement of His name in this world. So let's pray. King Jesus, we as we lift our voices to You, and King Jesus, um, that title reminds us that we sit on our faces before You. And the reason for that made so clear in our text today that we were bound that we were held captive we were enslaved to the tyranny of sin to our great enemy and foe but out of a sheer act of your grace and your mercy you decided to come down and live a life that we should have lived to die a death that we deserve providing a way for us to be able to stand right before the Father and to live and walk in freedom under your grace so we say thank you. And we want to say thank you by 
responding. Help us, Lord, as a church to consider ourselves, to reckon ourselves dead to sin alive to God in Christ. And Lord, let us do that with our the offering that we give today, that we would give it sacrificially, we would give it cheerfully, we would give it with the confidence that you are making your known in, the name in the world known and we get to partake in that. So Lord, we thank you for the gifts that come and let us use them for the advancement of your name. Lord, we love you and we say with great joy that we know that you love us in Christ and it's in Jesus' name we pray and we end our time. Amen.